are listening to the teaching ministries of Southwest Church, located in the heart of Springboro, Ohio, at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. Dear God, thank you for this time that we've had to be here today to worship you and to just sing these great songs, to be reminded that even the breath we breathe comes from you. Help us, Father, to just give you the honor and the glory that uh, you so rightly deserve. Father, I pray that today you'll be at work uh, through Andrew and myself as we stand up here and share from your word. I pray, Father, that your spirit will give us the words to say so that we can all see the importance of leadership in in maybe a clearer way than we've ever seen it. And I pray, Father, that you'll just put on the hearts of people that here that have those gifts and talents to lead, that you will inspire them to use them for your glory and for your work even here in this place. So thank you, God, and we just commit this time to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We almost entitled this current message series, Next Gen Up, uh, playing off the the sports mentality of when an athlete uh, graduates, retires, or is injured, it's important for another player to step up. There's probably no one that illustrates that better uh, in the Bible than the apprentice of the Apostle Paul, a guy named Titus. So let's dig into some Bible verses this morning and learn about the importance of an emerging leader from this guy in Scripture named Titus. First of all, you might say, well, who was Titus? Well, in what was probably Paul's first recorded written letter, Galatians, Paul introduces us to this individual named Titus. He writes these words in Galatians chapter 2. He says, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I, I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. As Paul describes his second trip to Jerusalem, he introduces us to his mission partner and apprentice, a guy named Titus. Paul was grooming him to be the next generation leader. Specifically, he mentions here that he was Greek, that he he wasn't Jewish. That's the reference to the fact that he had not been circumcised. Titus, in so many ways, represents that next generation of Jesus followers who think differently and maybe even see the world differently. And this begins to answer the question why we're putting the spotlight on him this weekend. In one of Paul's later letters, a a letter written to uh, the church in Corinth, Greece, Paul mentions Titus by name nine times. I think that's significant. I think it's significant for a number of reasons. One is that 
2 Corinthians, which is one of my favorite letters of Paul, I, I believe in this letter we, we really see Paul's heart come out, his heart for others, his heart for ministry. And in this letter, as Paul reveals his heart and concern for others, he spotlights Titus. In the 8th chapter of 2 Corinthians, Paul writes these words, Thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. You see, Titus, who was Paul's apprentice and this emerging leader, had learned from Paul and had embraced Paul's heart for others. In fact, as you dig into 2 Corinthians, it appears that Titus was Paul's messenger to Corinth. Sometimes we lose sight of the importance of messengers in the first century. You see, we live in a time that we can communicate with people across the world through text or phone calls, using our cell phone. We can even FaceTime people in a different part of the world. You know, my wife and I, uh, we love FaceTiming our granddaughter that lives in Michigan. And, and we can sing songs with her. We can sing Jesus Loves You. We can read books to her through FaceTime. It's a way to connect, even with people across the world. And yet in the first century, these letters recorded in the Bible would have to be carried by courier. It appears that Titus made three trips from the northern region of what's now Greece, but was called Macedonia, down to this city of Corinth. In fact, Paul had great confidence in Titus, not only delivering his letters, but representing his heart and his commitment to Christ. Or as one commentator wrote, Titus must have been one impressive young man in order for Paul to stake his own reputation on his conduct and character. Later in the letter, as Paul is defending his and Titus' reputation, he writes these words, did, it, did Titus take advantage of you? No, for we have the same spirit and walk in each other's steps, doing things the same way. You see, just as Jesus had disciples who followed his example, Paul had disciples or apprentices who were learning from him. Titus was an excellent example of this. Now, as we continue to live out our mission here at Southwest, which is to be a church that's really serious about following Jesus and making disciples, then we want to see more and more people taking that step of not simply being disciples or followers of Jesus, that's important, but also to become disciple-makers. Now, for this to happen, it's important for more and more people here at Southwest to accept the call to be spiritual parents, helping others grow in their faith and in their walk of following Jesus. Now, the best way, I think, to do that, if somebody's sitting there today thinking, okay, maybe I could be that emerging leader, maybe I could be that next person to step up and provide leadership in the church. I think the best way to do that is to learn from or apprentice with those who are already doing this. I'm grateful for the numerous leaders we have here at Southwest who are leading ministries or small groups, and yet it's important for us to follow the example of discipleship in the Bible. It's important for more and more people to be willing to apprentice alongside those who are more experienced as leaders. You see, I'm not convinced that we can lead others 
in discipleship or make disciples unless we have first been willing to learn from others or be made a disciple. In other words, if we aren't willing to follow an experienced leader, are we really going to be able to lead others? Or as Jesus put it, can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their their teacher. Now, with all that said, I'm grateful for a number of young emerging leaders here at even at Southwest. One of those is our new junior high minister, Eric Kraft. Eric's been doing a great job leading our junior high ministry. In fact, he led a 20-plus junior high students to go to a, a, a Believe conference this weekend. And we want to listen to what Eric's learning about leadership here at Southwest. Let's listen in. Leadership, um, no matter what season you're in, is difficult. It's always, it's always a challenge to navigate it. You hit a Wednesday, and Wednesday's hard, and you got to be the leader anyway. And uh, I think that's just one of the things that's been encouraging. And just even seeing like older leaders who have led for years still struggle sometimes. I think being a part of Southwest has really challenged me to be more creative and put me in a lot of different positions that I haven't been in yet as a young leader and has forced me to uh, just really understand what it means to lead people well and shepherd them. One thing I've noticed is that having a mentor is always been super beneficial for me whenever I'm struggling with something in a leadership role that, you know, it's hard to maybe talk to the people around you that are involved in that context. So having a mentor that I can just go to, to get feedback from someone outside of a different context who's maybe been through similar challenges has really helped me grow and see things from a different perspective. things that we should be doing is constantly replacing ourselves and constantly training up newer and younger people to take up the next mantle. Um, Eric Kraft can't be the junior high pastor forever. Andrew Beal can't be the student pastor forever. Um, We get older and our leadership styles change and then we're called to something different. Um, So raising up new and young leaders to take our positions and to uh, lead well with us is always good. Uh, I remember when we were filming that on Wednesday, uh, Eric said something like, like in a line that wasn't actually in the video got cut, he said something like, you know, Andrew Beale can't be the student ministry forever, minister forever, he might die or something. I'm like, well, all right, we won't explore that any further. So in reading the Bible, many people uh, bunch First and Second Timothy and Titus together whenever they're studying or exploring the Bible. Uh, You can find much the same type of material in all three of those books or those letters, those epistles. You know, uh, both Titus and Timothy, they were young leaders and they were mentored by Paul and they featured heavily into uh, some of his missionary journeys um, that we read about in Acts and other letters uh, that Roger explored. 
But perhaps the biggest difference between these two guys is that it seems that Timothy was placed in leadership over some existing churches, whereas it looks like Titus was tasked with uh, more planting churches or starting churches from scratch where he was positioned, which was the island of Crete. If you don't know where that is, Crete, it is a, a large island about 100 miles off the southern coast of Greece in the Mediterranean Sea. We don't have time to go through all of the uh, book of Titus this morning, and we kind of wanted to give like a snapshot, a 30,000-foot view of this letter uh, so you know what's covered, you know, from, uh, you know, from first word to last word. Uh, so if you want to go through this in your own time, you kind of have an informed view of what you can find in your own study. Titus, it's only three chapters long, so it's a really quick read. And we're actually going to be uh, camping out more in chapter two than anywhere else this morning. But yeah, Titus, he's tasked with uh, starting new churches. He's a church planter, and Paul says that the biggest obstacle in his way, if there's anything that's going to stop him, it is the presence of false teaching. Lots of false teachers around on the island of Crete in Titus's sphere of influence. And if you read chapter 1, as soon as Paul gets his greeting to Titus out of the way, he jumps right into the importance of appointing elders, qualified elders for leadership over these church plants. It won't be on the screen, but this is out of Titus 1. These are the types of leaders, elders that Paul uh, calls. It says, an elder must live a blameless life. He must be faithful to his wife, must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, must not be a heavy drinker, violent or dishonest with money. Rather, he must enjoy having guests in his home, must, have what, must love what is good. He must live wisely and be just. He must live a devout and disciplined life. He must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message he was taught. Then he will be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching and show those who oppose it where they are wrong. These are the types of elders that Crete needs. Uh, a couple weeks ago, two weekends ago, Super Bowl weekend, Roger gave a message out of 1 Peter chapter 5 where he focused on elder leadership. So if you want like a further or more in-depth study of that, that would be a good message to check out uh, sometime this week. I think the message was called A Whole New Ball Game from a couple weeks ago. But I want to point out a, just a, a line or two specifically about elders on Crete and that these elders must love what is good, must be just, and strongly believe in the gospel because they'll need to oppose and call out false teaching. These elders, these leaders are not going to be able to just sit back and take it easy. You know, they need to be doers of good and constantly be vigilant, be fighting against false teaching and false truths. And on your own time, if you want to look at it, chapter 1 kind of ends with a more uh, detailed look at what exactly those false teachings going around might be. Then chapter 2, it gives specific instructions on uh, separate demographics. That's older men, that's older women, younger men, younger women, and slaves. And we're going to get more, uh, we're going to go into that more deeply here in a few minutes. But chapter 2, that we won't really cover, it kind of wraps up with giving the reason why to live godly lives, and that grace and redemption and a people that God can call his own are the foundation for everything that we do. And then chapter 3, it kind of ends up the letter focusing on the importance of doing good to those outside the walls of the church, in the community, and a final warning against false teachers. Paul does not want Titus to forget exactly what he is fighting, the danger of false teaching and half-truths. So that's our, you know, 30,000, our airplane view of uh, the letter of Titus. And as Roger said, you know, we're spotlighting Titus um, because uh, Southwest, we have a huge, a massive priority on the next generation of leaders, uh, that's, you know, younger people, that's students, that's children. 
you know, even especially this 9.30 hour, you know, even already in the new, you know, children's wing, we have, you know, the classes, they're packed, they're full of students, and uh, Roger alluded to, you know, this conference we just went to with junior hires, a record number of junior high students that we take to this conference every single year, so it uh, doesn't even seem this way. God is clearly moving in the ministries of students and children here at Southwest, which is cause for celebration, I think. Uh, <clears throat> but looking at the inside, yeah, it's delayed, yeah, we can throw out a clap. But looking at uh, what's going on inside these walls and uh, comparing that with what's going on outside these walls, I can't, see, I can't say that I'm as optimistic about what's going on just, you know, outside the walls of any given church on a Sunday morning. I might ask, you know, do you get the sense that God is powerfully moving in the hearts of young people all over the country? I personally don't get that sense. You know, I could ask another question, you know, are we more comforted or are we more concerned with the culture that our young people are growing up in? I'm on the heavily concerned side. I'm going to, you know, just read a list of like descriptive words of a certain culture and I want to see if any of this sounds familiar or what you think or where you think this might sound like. Uh, people are liars, full of evil, they're lazy, gluttonous, and entitled. They lack ethics and don't have a major problem with stealing. Greed and envy, they're so common, they're not really even seen as all that bad. They're just seen as normal. People are lovers of money. Uh, class participation, does this sound familiar to anyone? Could anyone maybe even say, this maybe sounds a little like the United States, class participation? Yeah, half, and then we have some shy people, the introverts, who are too shy to raise a hand. It's actually that list of the, you know, how, a how this particular culture is that I just kind of read off. It's actually a description of the island of Crete. I read that and I'm like, actually, that sounds not maybe 100%, but really, really close to kind of the world that we're growing up, you know, in this particular uh, part of the planet. So if there's any comfort from reading this, it's that we kind of have a blueprint or at least a guide as, you know, how do we... Uh, how do we combat, how do we fight against, you know, false teaching, and uh, how do we fight against, you know, the idea that there are many truths out there? Because it really is, you know, a damaging and harmful world that we can live in. Maybe not all the time, but, you know, we've all been hurt before, and we know how impacted young people can be with all this. A couple weeks ago, I began reading this uh, relatively new book. It came out, I think, maybe just a month ago, maybe in the fall, but it's called Meet Generation Z. And Generation Z, uh, it is that group of people who have been born in the late 90s, you know, 97-ish to about 2010. And it's, you know, this book about, you know, just what are the, the values, what's important, what's the mindset, what's the culture, what's the reality of those who are today around six or seven years old all the way up through 20, maybe 21. And to help out and also just to, like, get as many of us feeling as old as possible, I just kind of want to give, like, a, a look at what, you know, the picture of Generation Z. So here's kind of what their reality is. Among those not alive in their lifetime are Mother Teresa, Notorious B.I.G., Princess Diana. They've always been, they've always been dead. Google has always existed. Generation Z, they have never licked a postage stamp. Hong Kong has always been under Chinese rule. They've all grown up treating Wi-Fi as an entitlement. Does that sound right with people with like, young kids? <laughs> if you use the phrase, around the turn of the century, they very well might ask, well, which one are you talking about? The therapeutic use of marijuana has always been legal in a growing number of American states. The Lion King has always been on Broadway. 
First responders have always been heroes, and hybrid cars have always been mass-produced. They've also been growing up in a culture that is known as post-Christian, which means that where people maybe a generation or two ago had values and a worldview that was strongly Christ-centered, people now mainly have a secular or even a narcissistic or self-centered view of the world. Something I always track every year is Oxford Dictionary. Every single year, for a number of decades now, they pick an international word of the year that kind of uh, kind of defines the era that we're living in. In 2016, it was no different. The 2016 International Word of the Year from Oxford Dictionary was post-truth. Post-truth. And here's what that means. Post-truth means that we're living in a time when objective facts don't carry nearly as much weights weight as feelings and emotion. In other words, how you feel is more important than objective facts. How you feel is more important than truth. In fact, some might even feel that we could say that truth is dead in an era of fake news and alternative facts. How are we all feeling right now? Are we happy? Are we cheery? <laughs> feeling good about all this? <laughs> if there's something that we can all leave here with this morning, it's that there should be and there needs to be a very important and critical work to be done with those who are younger than we are, those who are younger than you are right now. I'm convinced that we all have a part to play and not one of us is given permission to sit on the sidelines. Anyway, this is how Paul starts out chapter 2 as he's writing to Titus. He says, As for you, Titus, promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. Teach the older men to exercise self-control, to be worthy of respect, and to live wisely. They must have sound faith and be filled with love and patience. Similarly, teach the older women to live in a way that honors God. They must not slander others or be heavy drinkers. Instead, they should teach others what is good. These older women must train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to live wisely and be pure, to work in their homes, to do good, and to be submissive to their husbands. Then they will not bring shame on the word of God. In the same way, encourage the young men to live wisely. And you yourself must be an example to them by doing good works of every kind, Let everything you do reflect the integrity and seriousness of your teaching. And then teach the truth so that your teaching can't be criticized. Then those who oppose us will be ashamed and have nothing bad to say about us. Paul asked Titus to address the older individuals in the church, men and women, to pursue a certain lifestyle. It all falls under the banner of promoting the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. Thesis statement, promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. And he begins with the older men in three main things. That's use self-control, be worthy of respect, and to live wisely. Now, Paul isn't one to waste words. And in reading scripture, I try to read between the lines. And I uh, sometimes think that uh, what's just as important is what isn't said as what is. And my take is, from at least these verses, is if Paul is, using, is telling men to use self-control and to be worthy of respect and to live wisely, it tells me that they're not doing any of these things. Or if they're trying it all, then they're just failing. You know, it seems that the majority of the older men, the men who are supposed to be the, uh, the main leaders, are, well, they're not good at self-discipline. They're just not good at controlling their desires. Moderation is a concept foreign to them. You know, this comes down maybe to how they spend their money, perhaps how much they eat, perhaps how much uh, alcohol they take in. Uh, It could come down to their sexual lives or even sexual habits. And the message here, 
from Paul to Titus to the older men is get your impulsive and even foolish living under control. How you're living, nothing about it is respectful, and it certainly isn't wise. Then he follows that up with pursue love and pursue patience. And then he turns his attention to the older women of Crete, and they have three big things as well. And again, if Paul specifically mentions it, it means it is currently a problem. He's not going to waste his words. Older women, they're taught to, be, uh, to live in a way that honors God, not to slander others, and not to be heavy drinkers. But as Paul writes on, he, uh, he puts more of an emphasis not on the behavior of the older men and older women, although that is strong language here, but especially if you look at the, you know, the original Greek that this was written in, he gets even more passionate about the concept of training and teaching and pouring into the younger generation. Strong words for addressing your own lifestyle, but that's important just because there's something even more important at stake, and that's because there are younger people around you who need to know exactly how to live. I'm guessing, you know, many of us in this room had heroes growing up, childhood heroes, maybe even current heroes, uh, just looking at the uh, range or the, the, the ages that are represented here. I was thinking about this, and, you know, maybe heroes that collectively we had growing up. I have, you know, some written down, maybe Martin Luther King, perhaps one or both of the Kennedy brothers, Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, Muhammad Ali, perhaps Billy Graham, uh, Pete Rose. <clears throat> I Myself, my hero growing up was Indiana Jones. Actually, you know what, even now, you know, childhood aside, my hero now is Indiana Jones. <laughs> even if I, like, hear that theme music playing, I'm convinced I can accomplish anything in the world. That's what it does for me. And every so often, I'll ask a junior high student or a high school student who their heroes are. And for uh, about five or six years now, I've been, in general, getting the same disheartening answer. Who are their heroes? They really don't have any. When I ask this, they genuinely struggle to point to someone that they can look up to. So I do some prodding, I do some questioning, and the reason they don't have heroes to look up to is they feel like they're just going to be disappointed anyway. They're just going to be let down. You know, how many once-revered athletes have been found to be on performance-enhancing drugs? How many talented musicians did we lose, I mean, just last year alone because of out-of-control drug use or alcohol use or just, you know, their hard lifestyle? So the attitude of Generation Z, or maybe even you yourself, is why look up to someone and put your hope in them when it's going to be discovered that it's all a fraud anyway? And I get it. But this is the state of things. And I think Paul would instruct everyone in this room the exact same way he's instructing Titus. You know, back in verse 4, you know, say, you know, these older women must train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to live wisely and be pure, to work in their homes, do good, be submissive to their husbands. Then they won't bring shame on the word of God. And then he follows this, you know, then encourage the young men to live wisely. Can I just point out, I just love how <laughs> Paul has this laundry list for the older women, for the younger women, you know, just four, five, six, seven things. And then for the men, it's just like one, as if like we can only remember one thing at a time. Yeah, and just instruct the young men to live wisely. Get that done, we'll be good. So as Roger and myself have alluded to earlier, uh, early this weekend, Friday into Saturday, we got back here around 5 o'clock yesterday. Uh, 28 of us, 22 students, 6 adults, 
uh, brave adults. We went to a junior high conference called CIY Believe. We do this every single February down on the campus of Northern Kentucky University across the river. And the entire theme this weekend was generosity and that God gives good gifts. And there are a lot of things that stuck out to me from the weekend, but the biggest thing, at least yesterday and into the morning, is I was reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew 10 when he says, Freely you have received, now freely give. Freely you've received, now freely give. Uh, Years ago, I was hanging out with some high school students. It was toward the end of a week of camp, and we were in a circle kind of wrapping up, putting a nice little bow on the end of the week, uh, just going around saying encouraging, uplifting things to one another. You know, things that we noticed or appreciated or just stuck out to us as we watched them live their lives. And I, I actually just was kind of facilitating this. And then one student decides he's going to bring me into this. My uh, student, Barrett, he's a good friend now. But he looked at me, deathly serious. He looked at me and said, Andrew, I watch you all the time. Which I don't know if anyone said that to you. But my initial internal thought is, oh my gosh, what did he see me do? What have I done that he has imprinted on his mind? But he explained that in uh, the years he had known me, observing me, that he had learned some things about love, about ministry, and how to treat people. And I don't, I don't share that anecdote to cast myself as the good guy or the hero of the story, but I do this because as older Jesus followers, we are being watched. And we're being watched like hawks. I had a thought, you know, what if we took this command, this idea of teaching and training the younger generation to a whole new level? You know, looking at the calendar, there are a few really big events coming up in the next two weeks. You know, next Sunday, there's this mother-son bowling event. And, you know, I was thinking, you know, what if just, you know, in addition to just having a good time, a good memory maker, what if that was, you know, day one is just starting to build a culture of families coming together in the name of Jesus and living out what lives that honor Jesus look like? Just doing it all together in the same place. I, for one, I'm not going to underestimate the power that can come from 50 Christian mothers gathering in the same place at one time. Lots can happen there. And the same thing, you know, with this father-daughter dance coming up on the 3rd. You know, a big reason that we do this event most years is, I don't know about you, but I think that young girls need to know they are loved, they are valued, they are respected for who they are, for exactly who God created them to be. You know, they're worthy, they have value, they're beautiful, and their esteem should never, ever come from what some teenage boy says about them or what the world would have them, you know, do with their bodies or how they would clothe themselves. I do not subscribe to that thinking. You know, I think a way to bring back heroes and bring young people back to truth, to the truth, is to show them what truth looks like, not just in word, but in action. You know, we teach them and we train them, and we do this better when we're together. Better together, I believe in that wholeheartedly. Mother-son bowling, father-daughter dancing, great steps in seeking a claim saying, my family will not be torn apart by the lies of the world. It might seem small, it is not small. But even outside of like special events like that in our student ministry and in our children's ministry here at Southwest, you know, I think everyone in here, and I don't, I'm not exaggerating when I say this, I think everyone in here has the ability to contribute something, to give something to students and to children or even those who are just younger than you. As Jesus said, you know, freely we've received, so freely we can give. Some of you have wisdom. Give it away. Give your wisdom away. You know, some of you are great at providing care 
to people who are hurting. So go be caring. It's free. It does not cost you anything. And some of us have the unbelievable gift of encouragement, of building and lifting other people, uh, just boosting that self-esteem. So go be affirming to a 5-year-old or go be affirming to a 13-year-old because they need it. The 13-year-old will pretend that he or she doesn't, but they need it. Words don't cost you a thing. They are absolutely free. We can be, we can be generous. We can be abundantly, foolishly abundant with our words to other people. I wholeheartedly believe that one of the best things that you can do, no matter how old you are, be it 80, 60, 45, 20, or 12, is to enter into the life of someone younger than you and be the person that you needed when you were their age. You know, go be the person that you needed when you were 15. Go be the person you needed when you were 5. Go be the person you needed when you were 50. You know, as I reflect on the words of Jesus, you know, uh, he has his several I am statements in the Gospel of John. But one thing Jesus did not say, Jesus did not say that I am a way. He didn't say I am a truth, I am a life. No, he says I am the way, the truth, the life. Anything outside of me is false teaching. Anyone younger than you, the next generation, this younger generation, they need to know what truth looks like and sounds like. The next chapter, Titus chapter 3, begins with Paul saying this to Titus. He says, Remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. They should be obedient, always ready to do what's good. They must not slander anyone and must avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be gentle and show true humility to everyone. Because once we too were foolish and disobedient, we were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. All those words are past tense. We were like this, or we did live this way, but then real truth entered our lives. That's the between the lines reading of what Paul's writing. Freely we have been given, freely you have been given, so freely give what you have to those who can use it, to those who need it. Follow Jesus closely, and you will be worthy of being followed yourself. Know this, you're being watched, we're being watched, every single one of us. So I'll speak for myself, I myself, for the sake of myself and the next generation, I'm going to keep my eyes firmly fixed on Jesus. To explore a little more as far as you know, why this matters, why we even gather together and hear these words and do these things, I want to invite Roger up to, uh, <clears throat> well, to take us just a little bit deeper into why we put such stock into these words. So, Thank you. <clears throat> Andrew did a great job, didn't he, of sharing God's Word. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Andrew. We appreciate you. As we conclude our message together this morning and prepare our hearts for a time of communion, let's answer one more question. What is the message of hope found in Titus? Andrew did a great job describing some of the challenges of any generation because and it, every generation is going to have those challenges because of the ongoing struggle of the human heart. And yet in the midst of those struggles, there's always hope. There's always hope found in Jesus Christ. And that's how Paul closes this letter to Titus in 
in Titus chapter 3, verse 4, after all this, this dark stuff that's been described in Crete and even in our culture, he says, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. One of the reasons we have communion every week here at Southwest is because regardless of what might be going on around us in our world, what might be going on even in our own lives, it's so important that we take time as we begin every week to remember the kindness and love of God that appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. And that through his love and mercy that we can be made right with God. The hope of the Christian is that they are in a saved relationship with God. Not based on personal righteousness or right living. But because of his mercy. You see the promise in the scripture is that the Christian is washed clean. Forgiven. Given new life through the power of the Holy Spirit and through what Jesus accomplished for each and every one of us when he went to the cross. In the last phrase of this hope-filled paragraph, which, by the way, is interesting in the original language, it's one sentence. Paul had that tendency when he wrote to get so carried away. And it's like he's so carried away with this idea of hope that's available in Christ. He just gives this enormous run-on sentence because he just is so excited about the hope that's available in Christ and what it means to be justified by the grace that's found in Christ and what it means to be heirs or co-heirs with Christ, having the hope and the confidence of eternal life. You know, he, he closes out this section with this word, justified. We don't use a lot of big words around here at Southwest, but I really like this word, justified. It's a powerful word. It, it means that, that we are made right with God. One of the best definitions I've heard of the word justified is just to break it up, to be justified by God, to be justified by what Christ has done for us means that it's just if I'd never sinned. As I look back on the previous week, undoubtedly I can see ways that I have fallen miserably short of God's glory. I can see ways I've fallen miserably short of Jesus Christ's example. And yet when I take the bread, when I take the cup, that because Jesus died for me and because he died for you, that I stand before God just if I'd never sinned. 
I stand before God clean and washed and innocent and pure. And if you're in Christ, as you take communion today, realize you're justified, just if you'd never sinned. If you're not yet in Christ, that's the hope that's waiting for you because Jesus loves you and died on the cross for you. Think about that as we observe this time of communion together. Let's pray together. Dear God, we're thankful for just how timeless your word is and how as we think about the importance of leaders to step up for the next generation. Father, your word has strong things to say about that. And we're thankful, Father, that regardless of how we might feel about the future, and what's going on around us in our culture. Father, we can take great hope and have great hope because of what Jesus has done for us. Help us celebrate that now as we observe this time of communion. Help us be grateful. Help our hearts be filled with hope. It's in Jesus that we pray. Thank you for listening to Southwest Church Teaching Ministries. We are a community of people committed to following Jesus and making disciples. Please join us for one of our three weekly gatherings, Saturdays at 5.30 p.m., Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11.15 a.m.